You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Well, if you have your Bible, open to Psalm 73, where we're going to be beginning, in a, be beginning a new series today over the next few weeks on the topic of doubt. I love this psalm, and I'm excited to get to open it up with you uh, over the next month or so, because this question of doubt I find to be so uh, so common for all of us, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, whether uh, you've been part of church for a long time or this is something new for you, I found that, that a lot of us wrestle with doubts. Now, this is not going to be an apologetic series where we try to attack those doubts head on, where we talk about um, doubts you might have about the resurrection or doubts you might have about the existence of God. That, that would be a great series to do, and, and we'll do that sometime. But, but that's not what this is about. This is actually about getting at what's underneath doubt, like what animates doubt for us? What comes, uh, like where does the doubt come from in our human heart? And this psalm really helps us think about that in some, at least for me, some ways I found really helpful and really profound. Now this is different than how our culture talks about doubt. Our culture kind of talks about doubt uh, sometimes like it's a virtue, right? Like I just can't help doubting I'm just so well-read or I'm just so street smart or I'm just so thoughtful that doubt is kind of like a virtue sometimes for some of us. Now, others of us are kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. We see doubt as this vice, this thing that we've got to push down, that uh, it may be inevitable, but we've got to try to fight the good fight against doubt and just try to ignore it. But, but both of those, what they have in common is they treat doubt as if it's something that just exists on its own, that it doesn't come from anywhere and it just has to be there. I think this psalm is going to give us a very different picture of how we approach doubt. It's going to sort of take doubt off its pedestal, dem, dem, uh, demystify it a little bit, and look at some of the reasons why doubt might be there. Now, the English word doubt is a pretty broad term, and it can refer to a lot of different stuff. Uh, and in a way, it's not a really helpful word. It's not actually a word that we see in the psalm. It's more of a category. Um, and some of you are going to say, this doesn't fit my experience of doubt. And, and I, I don't doubt that. <laughs> I'm really excited about that pun. Um, but I, I think this will at least help some of us, some of the time, give language to some of the th- things that we wrestle with with doubt. All right, well, enough... Uh, here, let's, let's jump into the psalm itself. And it's going to start with a, a proclamation of faith here in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You know, I, I just got done giving an introduction that said this is a psalm about doubt. And you say, Bob, that doesn't sound very doubty. This sounds really uh, faithful and really optimistic, uh, really like sort of boilerplate Bible stuff, right? God is good to those who are faithful and pure in heart. Where's the doubt in that? Well, this is a, an important verse. It's kind of a framing device. It helps us see that uh, the, the writer of the psalm, a man named Asaph, it says from the get-go, like, I want you to see what's real because we're about to get turned upside down into my doubts. But I want, I want to begin uh, by helping you know what is true. I don't know if you guys are watching, um, if you ever watch TV shows. I don't. I'm faster. But I kind of watched Obi-Wan Kenobi over the last couple weeks. And no spoilers, but it's a, it's a show about uh, Star Wars between uh, the third movie and the fourth movie. And so they try to make the Star Wars action movie without killing anyone that needs to be in the fourth movie, right? And so you have these battle scenes, and I'm like, that person lives, and that person lives. How are they going to fight each other, right? Uh, and they have to come up with these creative ways when you know the end to show some tension from the beginning. 
Uh, maybe you've watched other movies like this where like Saving Private Ryan starts with Private Ryan being alive as an old man, and you think, this is a war movie, and I already know he survives. How does that happen, right? The same thing is kind of true here with Asaph. His faith survives on the other end of this, and he wants us to know that. And he wants us to know, essentially, the problem ultimately is not with God, right? God is good to those who are pure in heart. But I, but I want you to see that, for me, Asaph says, the problem was in my heart. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He describes his faith, or maybe more accurately, his doubt, here in terms of slipping and stumbling, like he's losing his footing. And doubt can feel like that, can't it? Maybe you've had that experience where you feel like the ground is moving out from under you. Things that you thought were true now seem to be falling away. And if the things that you're believing to be true aren't true, it's good for them to fall away. Right? We, we all need to move out from places of, uh, of untruth. But Asaph says that for him, his faith in the very goodness of God uh, was starting to fall apart. Um, there can be a positive energy with doubt, of course. It depends on what you're doubting. It can move you into a better position. But for Asaph, he says his doubt in the very goodness of God was coming into question. I say Asaph, I should probably talk about who he is for a second, uh, because he's not a really well-known character. Asaph was a, a worship leader during the time of David, and he wrote a number of the Psalms, and he collaborated with David on those. We don't know a lot about his life, narrative-wise. He doesn't really show up in the history books much, except in lists of names. But he seems to have been a, a significant religious leader during the time of David. In some ways, that makes this psalm all the more striking, because it's a bit like Chris Tomlin saying, I led worship for thousands of people, and then I wondered, was this all worth it? <laughs> or if you're of a different generation, it's like Bill Gaither getting on TV and saying, like, I don't know if those songs are true. This is not a, the reason I point that out is to say that doubt is not necessarily just a beginning of faith journey. I wish I could say that doubt was like, uh, it, was, it was like the horizon, and, and once you sort of fly the plane 30,000 feet up in the air, you're not in danger of it anymore. But that's not how doubt is. Doubt is something that recurs throughout our spiritual life, not just at the beginning of faith or in childhood or adolescent years, but all throughout our life. Um, the good news about it, as we'll see in Asaph's case, is that his doubts actually have a positive energy for him. They drive him to deeper faith and greater faith on the far side of them. The doubt itself helps him to, to grow in his faith in ways that if he hadn't wrestled with these things, he wouldn't have grown in. I hope that's true for you as well. Francis Bacon, a, a Christian philosopher and scientist from uh, the 17th century, wrote this about doubt. And he wasn't necessarily talking about his faith. Um, he, was, he was talking about sort of learning more as a whole, but I think it applies to faith as well. He said, if a man begins with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if you will be content to begin with his doubts, he shall end in certainties. I love that quote. If a man begins with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with his doubts, he shall end in certainties. I hope that for you, that's your story of doubt, right? That, that it doesn't feel inevitable. It doesn't feel like it has to stay there. It can move to certainties. But that the existence of doubt itself um, doesn't preclude you from, from growing in faith down the line. Well, I said Asaph had a crisis of faith. Let me show you what that crisis of faith was rooted in here in verse 3. And this, to me, is really the key verse of today. This is the key verse of this part of the passage. It's in verse 3. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why did Asaph have a crisis of faith? Well, look at this verse. According to Asaph, the reason he had a crisis of faith is because he envied the prosperity of the arrogant and wicked around him. Asaph's faith almost crashed because he wanted a life that matched up with people around him who ignored God. And you and I are faced with that same temptation, right? That out of a heart of coveting, that we are pushed to doubt God's goodness. That when we covet, when we envy, when we want what we don't have, and we see other people having it, that it, it grows doubt in our heart. Now, I don't know how that strikes you. I, it, for me, it's a fascinating thing, but it's also a little bit of an embarrassing thing. You know, for, I said that we, we have narratives around doubt in our culture that are tied to our grandiosity, right? It's because I'm so smart. It's because I'm so thoughtful. It's because I'm so uh, strong-minded that I have doubt, right? Those are sort of the things that we tell ourselves sometimes. I don't know how many of us would like to think with Asaph, you know, some of my doubts, maybe all my doubts, or at least most of them, they come out of a heart of envy, of, of being envious, of coveting, of wanting something I don't have. It's not a real positive self-perception of our doubts. But this verse is really key to understanding the psalm because if you just skip over Asaph's insightful self-disclosure about his doubt, that for him his doubt is coming out of a place of envy, then you're tempted to just read the rest of the chapter and say, well, Asaph's struggle is over the problem of evil, right? He's wondering why wicked people can prosper. That's what he's wondering about. It's because he's so philosophical or he's so empathetic. That's where his doubts come from and maybe mine too. But Asaph says, no, 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 no. I wasn't wondering why wicked people prosper because of the goodness of God. I was wondering why wicked people prosper and I want that, <laughs> For him, it comes out of a heart of envy. Um, now, don't get me wrong. The question of why wicked people prosper is an important question. And the problem of evil is an important question. And, and we're going to wrestle with that a little bit today and, and, and more in the future. Um, but for Asaph, he realizes that behind that for him is not in, like some sort of indifferent academic question. But instead, it's a, a very real question rooted in envy. His willingness to put down what's really going on in his heart is so key for us as well. For Asaph, his doubt is animated by his envy. His envy energizes his doubts. It pushes them forward. I'm using the word envy here and coveting kind of interchangeably. And it makes me think of the, the 10th commandment, right? Do not covet whatever your neighbor has, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's donkey, your neighbor's manservant, right? Don't be the sort of person who looks at what others have and say, I need that, I'm going to take that. James in the New Testament says that envy is the root of all kinds of other sins against our brother and sister. That it is out of a heart of enviousness that we quarrel, that we fight, even that we murder. Right? That's what James 4.2 says. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. A lot of people have seen coveting, the 10th commandment, as sort of being the, the heart sin behind the other nine sins in front of it. That, that out of a heart of coveting, of wanting, whether it's the glory of God, whether it's wanting what our neighbor has, whether it's uh, wanting what belongs to someone else, that, that we take and we steal and we murder, we commit adultery, we, we take things that don't belong to us. Coveting is a very serious and real problem that our culture could not care less about, right? I, am, I imagine, I don't know, I imagine this is going to be the only time this week that you hear anyone say, hey, don't cultivate a heart of longing for what your neighbor has. And then we'll go online, we'll turn on TV, and we'll be inundated with messages that say, 
You want that. You want that. You want that. We, we swim in a sea of coveting and of envy, right? It's, it's what our culture and in some ways our economy is based on. If you and I and everyone in America became suddenly content with what we had this week, our economy would be in a lot of trouble, right? Um, and so I, I just say that to say, if Asaph's right and envy produces doubt, and you and I are about to go back into a culture that perpetuates and habituates envy all the rest of the week, we should be very concerned with what impact that's going to have on our doubts and on our spiritual life. It's a sin behind the sin in a lot of ways. Now, I, I do want to, again, take an aside here, because some of us are kind of crossing our arms at this and saying, Bob, that's not where my doubts come from. My doubts don't come from envy. My doubts come from watching someone I love have cancer and wondering why God doesn't care. Or my doubts come from uh, life experiences I have or traveling I've done or books I've read. Like, this doesn't line up for me in terms of the doubts that I have. I, I want to be open to that. I want to be open to God's word. Maybe, maybe part of it does, but, but there's a lot of it that doesn't. Okay, well, I, I want to think with you about this. If I were to say that smoking causes cancer uh, and then you had cancer, would that be me saying you have cancer because you're smoking? No, right? Smoking causes cancer. Not all cancer comes from smoking. I'm not saying that every doubt comes out of envy. I don't think Asaph's saying that. But I think he's saying that his doubts came out of envy. And I think that there's probably part of this that, that, that for me is more true than I'd like to admit. Because you know, we're all the hero in our own story. We'd all like to think that our doubts come out of places of virtue and of intelligence and of uh, being so thoughtful. I don't think a lot of us love the idea of thinking that our doubts come out of a place of enviousness, which I think is why all the more we need to look at God's word to be corrected in areas like this. Well, what did Asaph specifically envy about the wicked around him? Notice how in these next few verses, Asaph pines for the way that the wicked get away with, what, what, with whatever they want. This is verse four. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And just, this is a cultural difference here. Fat being a good thing, right? Um, in a culture where you might starve to death, being fat is a, is a good thing. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. What Asaph's saying is, I look at the wicked and nothing goes wrong in their life. Everything seems to go right. They ignore God and things work out better for them than the people who listen to God. And maybe you've run a story like that in your head before. And you've thought, man, if I didn't have to worry about my faith, my job would be a lot easier. If I didn't have to come to church on Sunday mornings, I'd have a lot more time to do the things I want. If I, if I didn't have to worry about uh, being generous to other people or being generous to the church, I could buy the things that I really want. And, and maybe that's like a minority voice in your mind, and you sort of tamp it down. You say, no, no, I shouldn't think that. I shouldn't think that. But maybe sometimes you sort of, in, in the darker moments, sort of fantasize about, if I could just stop being a Christian, if I could just stop being religious, if I, if I could stop worrying about this, then my life would be a lot easier. Or maybe you blame someone else. If my wife would just stop caring about all this church stuff, then our life would be a lot easier. If I could just, uh, if I could just sort of check out from God, man, it would make everything better. And, and again, maybe that's not a majority voice in your mind, but maybe it's like Asaph, something that rattles around in there. And we, hab we habituate doubt when we tell ourselves that the story that God is keeping us from having an easy life like everyone around us. 
if this temptation sounds familiar to, to doubt the goodness of God, that God is holding out on what's good, if that sounds like a familiar story, it is. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Right? That's what the tempter said to Eve. Don't you know that God is holding out on you? That this, this apple or pomegranate or whatever it was, this fruit is going to be making you wise like God. God's holding out on what's good for you. And we tell ourselves that same false story when we do like Asaph in this, par- in this psalm, telling ourselves that it is God who's keeping us from having an easy and wonderful life like the heathens around us or the wicked around us. Now, <laughs> there's an irony in these verses though. There's a couple of them, but, but there's an irony in these verses. Like, is Asaph right? Do wicked people never have pangs unto death? Do, do they never have any problems? Does everything go right for them all the time? Of course not, right? Like, even, even if Asaph's partially right, like, you know, I, I imagine drunk, drug kingpins have very nice cars, right? Like, there's probably some really nice parts about it. But he has a very misguided or, or probably a poetically exaggerating view of the lives of, wicked around, of the wicked around them. Our view of other people's lives is so often filled with speculation and exaggeration. We look at their life and we think, if I had it like that, it'd be so much easier. Now, we live in an age where that's all the more true even than those before us because we just see curated versions of each other's lives on social media. Have you ever gone back to your own Facebook and been envious of yourself? Because you, made, you built up this fake life. You're like, man, I had it really good. Wait, I was there. That's me. <laughs> I photoshopped that picture. Yeah. No. Um, some of you are struggling with doubt that is really rooted in envy, like Asaph was. And this envy is fed by what you think you see in the lives of people around you. And it's not even true. You're envious of lives that don't exist. Did you ever have a teacher in school who said, don't copy off your neighbor? Your neighbor might not know any more than you do about this test, right? You ever have a teacher who said that? I think we, we have doubts that are rooted in envy of copying off our neighbor's paper and our neighbor doesn't know any better than we do. Asaph sees the wicked totally ignoring God and he thinks their lives must be great. And, and this is how he sees them treating God. Look at verse six. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell through fatness. Again with the fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Gotta love the imagery of that. What, What Asaph says is he looks at the wicked around him and they seem to be totally indifferent to God. Sort of pridefully ignoring God in their generation. Now, uh, This is one of the wonderful, timeless parts about the Psalms. Asaph's writing this presumably during David's reign, which any reading of the Old Testament would see as sort of the high point spiritually, militarily, and economically of Israel's history. If there was ever a time when it would be easy to believe and worship God, it would be during David's reign. And if ever there was a time to believe and worship God and it'd be good to be a worship leader, it'd be during David's reign. And yet Asaph looks around the bend at the heathens around him or the wicked around him and he says they're totally ignoring God and their life is going great. They're getting exactly what they want. They don't worry about God and and they get everything that they could desire. Now, what's wrong with that sentence? They ignore God and they get everything they desire. Well, it's not the assessment of his neighbors unnecessarily, right? Maybe they do have a lot of good things. 
As Jesus would say in Matthew 5.45, the rain does fall on the just and the unjust. I'm not saying that the wicked didn't have great crops. The problem with saying they're ignoring God and their life is great is that it's only focused on what God could give rather than on God himself. It's a view of God that's transactional, right? Like Asaph, if all you're interested in God for is that he'll give you fatness and, and he'll give you the things of this creation, then maybe, maybe there is a doubt that needs to be dealt with. But if you ignore God and you don't feel like you're missing out on anything, you're missing God, right? And Asaph, and, and for all of us, our hearts need to be reminded of that. Honestly, the only reason that we would say what Asaph said is if envy had turned our heart upside down. If we'd become so invested in the things of this life, the things that we can see, the things our neighbor have, the things our neighbors have, that we've forgotten that our heart's ultimate longing is for God. If we ignore God and we still have everything we want, then it means we don't want God. Well, how do we benefit from praying through this psalm today? I know we're cutting the psalm short. It's because it's a series, and I feel like we're stopping the story in the middle because we're kind of just leaving Asaph in his doubt. Um, but, but we'll come back to it in the next few weeks. I, if you're not going to be here, because I hear sometimes people don't go to church every week, especially in the summer. <laughs> it's a rumor. Um, you're, obviously, you're welcome to read the psalm in its entirety. What, what you'll see is that Asaph's doubt continues to sort of go down a downward spiral until verse 16. And he says, but then I entered the sanctuary of God. And, and, and in verse 16, it sort of flips. And after that, he realizes in a bigger picture what God is up to in this world, how God is at work, and it helps reframe his doubt in a way that's really beautiful and helps us uh, today. So how does praying through this psalm help us today as Christians? Well, uh, I, I think we, with any psalm, we begin with the reality of our hearts. If you struggle with your prayer life seeming trite or shallow or kind of boring, the Psalms are really helpful because they, like this Psalm, really bring to the surface the realities of what's going on and help us to be honest with God. As Athanasius, uh, the church father in the fourth century would say, the Psalms become like a mirror to the person singing them so that he might perceive himself and the emotions of his soul. And so I hope that you'll pray through Psalms like this one and help you see what's really going on in your heart. And maybe specifically around this area of doubt. Maybe for you, you've never really thought of your doubts as coming out of a place of envy. You've only thought of them as being uh, maybe a virtue or maybe a problem, but they kind of just are what they are. So maybe this psalm in particular will help you ask God the question, God, in what way does my, do the doubts of my heart come out of a place of envying my neighbor? Um, and then... The other thing that I think they're really, this psalm is really helpful about is it helps us see the self-righteousness that's in all of our hearts. For Asaph, what's behind these first nine verses, or at least verses two to nine, after his initial proclamation of faith, is a remarkably high view of himself. He says, I looked out at the, the wicked over there and I saw how easy their life was. And what does that imply? That, that he's over here, away from them, as this self-righteous figure who is being ignored in spite of how good of a person he is. What this psalm will do, especially in the middle part that we'll talk about in a couple weeks, is it'll show us that uh, when he goes into the sanctuary and he, he sees the sacrifices happening, when he realizes that, that none of us are holy before a holy God, that all of us are on the side of the wicked, 
that all of us need uh, God's grace in our lives. This psalm helps us uh, bring to the surface the reality that, that we often pray to God out of a place of self-righteousness like Asaph and saying, like, I deserve more from you, God, rather than saying, have mercy on me, God. I'm a pers- I am an unclean person who comes from a people of unclean lips. A couple questions for you to pray about and reflect on this week. First off, how has envy undercut your footing in faith? Now, for you, it might not be economic envy. It might be about envy over social standing or reputation or family relationships or a romantic relationship, right? Envy doesn't just have to be about money. It can be about any number of things. How is, your, how is envy, and, and I'm making the assumption that all of us struggle with envy, how is envy undercut your standing in faith or your firm footing in faith? And then secondly, if the opposite of envy is contentment, how can I grow in contentment in Christ this week? Right? If envy energizes doubt, contentment is the vitamins that we all need. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these will we will be content. What could you do to grow in contentment, both in, in this relationships and, and, and physical life that we have here, but also contentment in Christ in all the good that he has given us in him. Um, all right, let me end with the end of Psalm 73 today. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is none on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. God, we have all that we need in Christ. It is in him that we have standing before our Father in heaven. It's in Christ that we trust that we have uh, someone who cares for us, who sees us, who knows us, and who loves us. And yet, God, we so struggle with envy as a people, as a culture, as a country, wanting what we don't have. And some of us are, are further along in that journey of contentment than others, but all of us need to grow in that. And God, may we not be like so many um, before us, may we not be like we've so often been, where that envy causes us to doubt your goodness. God, help us to see uh, how you love us, this, uh, how you love us, and how that love uh, shows itself most fully in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.